Well, it's been a while, but I'm going to continue uh, the series that I was working on on Wednesday evenings, looking at the doctrines of grace in the Gospel of John. Can anybody remember that far back and tell me where we left off? Neither can I. I had to look at my notes and see where we were. Turn with me, please, to John chapter 10. I'm sure you're all familiar with the term the doctrines of grace and by that we are generally referring to uh, Calvinism in the loose sense and of course we're all familiar with the five points of Calvinism we usually like to use the acronym TULIP to help us remember total depravity unconditional election limited atonement irresistible grace perseverance of the saints some of those terms aren't super accurate but since that's the acronym that I was taught as a child that's how I remember them and uh, interestingly enough John Calvin never formulated those five points as a summary of anything and it was quite some time before anybody actually put all that together and codified it and said these are these are five distinctives uh, that we call <clears throat> we call sovereign grace that was uh, that were developed in response to five points that Arminius came up with which is basically saying the opposite of those five things he came up with those things as as distinctives of the system that he was teaching and so in response those who were Calvinistic or sovereign grace came up with these five points and said no we disagree with you on these those five points in exactly these ways and so we're using that as a framework to scan through the Gospel of John and seek these things out and see how these things are revealed just in this one book of Scripture. So I say that because in our study we've been brought to this point of considering this doctrine of limited atonement, the L in TULIP. And, uh, and that's probably the worst term of the five for describing what it is that we believe because Jesus Christ's death is not some finite well of suffering that is only sufficient to pay for the sins of a certain number of people who committed a certain number of wicked acts in their lifetime Christ's death is not limited in that sense so often I've heard particular redemption being used as a better term for what it is that we're talking about when we talk about this particular aspect of sovereign grace and that is that Jesus Christ laid down his life for the sheep for those who he was in relationship with to the for those who the father gave him before the foundation of the world 
he went to the cross for us in particular. So we talk about particular redemption. And so we'll talk about what that does and does not mean. But I believe that Jesus Christ, when he died, his one death paid for all that was due to me personally, irrespective of how many wicked things I've done in my life, at what age I was redeemed, or how many other people are involved ultimately in the secret will of God when Christ died on the cross for his people. His death, his one death was sufficient to save me. And if there were no other human beings in the history of the world except one who were going to be saved by the work that the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross, he still had to die in order to die in our place. And so his death and the the work that he accomplished through his perfect obedience and everything he suffered and his act of dying on the cross is sufficient to pay for all the sins of everyone who he was in union with by the will of God the Father. But he laid down his life for his people specifically. So that's what we're talking about tonight. And we'll get halfway through this, and it'll be a bit of a cliffhanger. So hopefully you'll join us again next week and hear the conclusion of this lesson. So this term, by this term limited atonement, we mean the death of Christ is intended solely for his elect, and that the effect of his atonement actually secures their salvation. This is another thing. He didn't just die so that it would be possible that his people would be saved. By dying, he saved his people. And in the sovereign will of God, all those for whom he died do come to him in time, through the preaching of the gospel, through the gift of faith, by the application of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus Christ did not die for anyone who then would say, no thanks. Jesus secured the salvation of his people through his death. So we're going to talk about two things. Then that redemption is particular. That is that it has a a specific object in mind, the people upon whom he set his love, and that redemption is accomplished for the elect of God, that it cannot fail. So there are in the Gospel of John two classes of passages that treat on this subject of the death of Christ. And we'll consider the first of these tonight. This first class is those passages that set forth the death of Christ as intended for a particular people. The other class sets forth his death as having universal implications. And there are a lot of passages that we read about in the Bible, and these are the ones that the Arminians would key in on that, and interpret in a different way. Those things that where Christ talks about the fact that he came into this, came to uh, save that he laid down his life for all mankind. Or for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth him should not perish but have eternal life. What does it mean that God so loved the world? Is that is that universal language there saying that Jesus died for every person who ever existed? 
how are we to understand these two classes? We have these where Jesus says, I laid down my life for the sheep. And we have another verse that says, God so loved the world. How do we synthesize those things? So we ask the question tonight, but we won't answer it until next time. Are, are these two things a paradox that can never be harmonized? Or is there a way of understanding these passages that magnify the wonders of Christ's death? Are these, is this a contradiction or can we understand what this means in a way that makes sense? So in John chapter 10, let's read together verses 7 through 18 and then we'll go back and highlight a few things before we continue this survey. John 10 beginning at verse 7. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out, and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal, and to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling, and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he is an hireling, and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment I have received of my father. So this first passage that we look at sets forth this truth. As Christ states in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. So he has them in particular in mind. And it is for them that he lays down his life. And in verse 14, these sheep are termed his own. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and have known of mine. That is that they belong to him. In verse 15, he states, I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus made these statements to the Jews at the Feast of Tabernacles in the seventh month. So here we have parabolic language. He's using a metaphor. He's talking about his people as sheep, and he's talking about himself as a shepherd. And so in that sense, he's not being literal when he calls us sheep. But what he is saying is that he has a flock and he knows those who are in the flock. He knows each one of them. And not only does he know who is in his flock and who is not in his flock, but he loves them in a way that a hireling doesn't. He's not indifferent. He's not simply offering to take care of us. He does take care of us. He's willing to give his life for those people who are in his flock that he has relationship with. 
And of course, in the context, we understand that when he says he has sheep that are not of this fold, he's preaching to the Jews, and he's saying, I have some Jewish sheep, and there are other sheep that are not here today with us. They're not members of the people of Israel, but he has a large number of Gentiles that he is also in relationship with, and he lays down his life for them. And by virtue of doing so, he, he makes one fold out of all those who believe on him, both of the Jews and of the Gentiles. The sheep and the sheepfold here, he's not talking about the covenant nation of Israel of old. He's talking about the new Israel, the church, everyone that belongs to him. So later at the Feast of Dedication, which is Hanukkah, in the 12th month, Jesus is again at Jerusalem in verses 22 and 23, we read, And it was at Jerusalem, the Feast of the Dedication, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answers them and says, I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you believe not because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Well, in case there was any doubt, there are some people who are not his sheep. And these were Israelites. They were pedigreed Israelites. These were the leaders of the Jews and the doctors of the law, and they had every much as right to claim to be the covenant people of God as any other Jew in the Old Testament. But Jesus tells them that you are not my sheep. And why does he say this to them? Because they will not hear what he says. They do not believe his words. He explained that the unbelief of the Jews would be, was a sign that they were not of his sheep. That is, they were not given to him by the Father, and they were therefore not the objects of his redeeming death. In verse 27, he gives two marks of his sheep. He says, they hear my voice, and they follow me. He gives them eternal life destined for them in verse 28 and 29 because he lays down his life for them. And so he doesn't say it's available to them or they might receive eternal life if they'll listen. No, he says, and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And so here we find an eternal security rooted in the fact that we belong to Christ, that we are given to him of the Father, and that he has secured our eternal salvation through the death that he died for us in particular. If we jump towards the end of John to chapter 21, we find another passage that uses this same language about the sheep. 
in John 21, uh, verses 15 through 19. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry with, carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. So the Lord Jesus Christ calls Peter to feed his sheep and also calls him to follow him in a self-sacrificial love that will ultimately end up in his death, his martyrdom. Peter's to be a, an under-shepherd of Christ. And he is to feed his sheep. As we read here in verses 16 and 17, Peter's motivation to this service is his love for Jesus Christ, the one who laid down his life for his sheep. Turning back to John chapter 13 and leaving this metaphor of the sheep and the shepherd. In John chapter 13, we have the record of the Last Supper. And we read in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. When it says here, he loved them unto the end, this means literally, he loved them to the consummation. He loved them to the uttermost. He loved them to the to that end for which he came into this world. He loved them to the final measure of love which he would give in order to secure their salvation. But here we see that his death is set forth as being motivated, motivated by his great love for his own. Those who belong to him. Throughout the chapter, Jesus emphasizes his lowly service to his own and indicates that there was one among them that his service would not benefit. The one to whom he gave the sop, Judas Iscariot, his betrayer. And so, despite everything that Christ had done, for the disciples, everything that he had spoken to them, everything that he had shown them by example, all the prayers that he had offered, he tells Judas Iscariot that you're lost. You're not one of mine. 
if anybody ever had every possible spiritual benefit offered to them that could possibly be offered to them, it was Judas Iscariot. And yet he was lost. He was the son of perdition. It was, be, was it because Judas Iscariot was more wicked by nature than any of the other disciples? Was it because there was something wrong with him that wasn't wrong with every other human being? On the contrary, the only difference was that he was not one of the sheep. He was not one of the disciples. He was not truly regenerate. He had not given himself over. He was not one of Christ's own. Then he sets forth this service of love as a pattern that his disciples were to show to one another. As we see in verses 31 through 34 of John 13. Therefore, when he was gone out, that is, after Judas left, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You shall seek me, as I said unto the Jews, whither I go you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment give I unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. And so he gives them this charge and then his love for them was demonstrated by his death for them they wouldn't understand it when it happened but the Holy Spirit would come and illumine them and they would come to understand the meaning of his death and why it was that he died for them and what he accomplished in it in John chapter 15 we have Jesus' discourse on his relationship with his people he is the true vine, and his father is the husbandman, or the vine dresser. His disciples are the branches that depend upon the vine for life and are pruned by the father, which we read about in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. And then John, Jesus again takes up the theme of his love for his disciples in verse 9. His love for them is set forth again as an example and pattern for their imitation. In John 15, in verse 9, as the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another, as I have loved you. He sets forth the greatness of his love in verses 13 and 14. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. So we note these fo the following from these things. His death is voluntary. He lays down his own life. He tells us elsewhere that no man can take it from him. We read that he can lay it down, he can take it up again, 
This is something that he did purposefully. His death is for those whom he counts to be his friends. If that is a particular group of people. He says that he's doing this because they are his friends. And he says, thirdly, that those for whom he laid down his life may be recognized by their submission to his command. Those who are not submitted to his commands, not his friends. Those who are his friends, obey his commandment. And and it is for those whom he lays down his life. The last passage that we'll look at tonight is in John 17. In Christ's high priestly prayer. And in verse 19 he says, And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. The literal translation says, And for their sakes I am hallowing myself, that they may that they also may be hallowed by the truth. But of course, the word sanctify and the word hallow being synonymous, it means to make holy. So Jesus is saying, For their sakes I am making myself holy. That is he is setting himself apart to do the will of the Father that they also may be made holy by the truth. So the construction of the verse is such that what Jesus does is the ground of what will take place in the lives of his people. This is indicated by the fact that this verb, sanctify, is active and the participle Sanctified is passive, being sanctified, being made, being hallowed, or being made holy. And when he says, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified, this word that indicates that what follows is the purpose or result of that which precedes it. Jesus sanctifying himself indicates his total consecration to do God's will which culminates in his death on the cross for the consecration of his people to God. And so Christ's death, his obedience to the Father, is effective in securing the sanctification of his people. The one necessarily leads to the other, and so Christ really secures the death of those for whom, I mean, the life of those for whom he died. We are made holy because he died for us. The context and the content of his prayer indicates the same thing. He said, I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father in verse 28, or in chapter 16, verse 28. After he prayed, we read, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? In chapter 18, verse 4. Then after Peter cut off Malchus's right ear, he says to Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath, the cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? So this hallowing that he's talking about, this sanctifying of himself that he's talking about, he is talking about his death. When he says, I sanctify 
myself. He is talking about his death. It's keen, he's keenly aware of what it is that he must do, of what is required of him, and why he has come to do it. He is willing to accept this cup of woe, the cross. In this prayer itself, we find the somber tones of death and suffering. Father, the hour has come, he says in chapter 17, verse 1. I am no more in the world, he says in verse 11. He realizes that he's leaving the world. And now I am come to thee, in verse 13. He knows he's about to depart and go to be with the Father. I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. In verse 24, these statements indicate his consecration to his Father's will was so absolute in his mind. It was as though he had already died and returned to his Father. He's like, I'm on my way. I've finished what you've given me to do. I'm coming. There was no backing out. He could appeal to it as already finished. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And so he considers the work that he did to be done as good as done. And he appeals to that fact as he prays for us. This work that I've done is for them. And so he is sanctifying himself in his death for their sakes. He says, I'm doing it for them. That is for all those whom the Father had given to him. As we've read in many places, his death is for a particular people. So that is going to be the end of our consideration of this aspect of Christ's particular redemption, that he came and died for his people, for his sheep, for his friends, for all those that the Father had given him. And the next time, we'll consider those other passages where we read that Christ's death is for the world, or whosoever, or all. And we'll consider the meaning of those and try to understand how we synthesize our understanding of those passages with these that we've already considered. Our purpose will be to determine if they are, if they are in harmony with this particular or limited atonement. There you go, there's your cliffhanger.